Well, I got to say, I'm, I'm realizing as I stand up here getting ready to preach to you guys that I hadn't really thought this through very well. Um, Pastor Pierre, when, when Brandon emailed me this week and said he was available to be here, he also mentioned he was available to preach. And, and I said, well, I've already got the message prepared. We're in this series, so that's not necessary. But I just realized that now, like, preaching in front of you is a little bit like playing basketball in front of Michael Jordan. And so I'm a little nervous now. I'm, like, I'm sweating, and I don't usually sweat when I'm up here. I don't... I don't I don't know what that is, but um, hey, we're, we're continuing in our series called The Story today. The story is this book right here. Uh, it's based on this book, and this book is based on this book, um, the Bible. And so what we're doing is, as a church, we are going through this year the entire story of the Bible. And we're using this book, uh, but you don't have to use this book. And so if you're just joining us or if you haven't been following along very well, there's a reading plan uh, on the back of your worship program right here. Uh, so you can follow along with us. And we just say, uh, don't, don't try to go back and catch up to where we are. We'll try to catch you up as we go. But if you're uh, following along, if you're just joining us in, uh, just start with next week. Read chapter 18 for next week or, or read uh, the story of Daniel for next week. And then you'll be prepared uh, when you come next Sunday. But today, if you have your Bible, we're going to start in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 33. Uh, let me ask you this. How many of you uh, right now would say that you are... Uh, on a diet, or watching what you eat, or, or trying to exercise more, or in some way watching your health? Probably about half the room. Okay, good. Well, I, I think over time, uh, we tend to get out of shape, don't we? And we do some things uh, over time to try to get back into shape. And I, I think we, none of us intend to get fat, right? None of us intend to get fat. And nobody ever says, you know what? I need to put on about 50 pounds. And so I'm just going to start eating and stop exercising. We just, we just stop being active sometimes, right? I mean, when you're in high school and when you're in college, it's easy to stay fit because you're always on the move and, and you don't have much money. And so you don't get to eat as much maybe as you'd like. But as you get a job and, and you get home at night and you're tired, it's easier just to sit on the couch and, and kind of let uh, your body get away from you. And especially for guys, I mean, living in Hamilton County, I see a lot of women that look like they have really taken care of themselves since high school with a lot of guys that haven't. Um, And so, guys, I mean, for us, it just seems like it's easy and it's more socially acceptable for guys to be maybe a little fatter than women. And so it's easier for us. I know um, I heard Pastor Rick Warren a couple years ago who pastors a large church, Saddleback Church, out in L.A., and uh, in the in the LA area, and Rick Warren decided that he was going to do something about his health. And he got up in front of his congregation one Sunday, and he said, "Guys, I have to confess to you, I have not been a good example in the way of health." He said, "Now I have to confess, as your pastor, I've only gained about two or three pounds this year." He says, "But I've been your pastor for thirty-five years, and so um, it, that, that's kind of how it happens, isn't it? None of us intend to let our health get away from us, but a pound turns into three and three turns into 10, and 10 into 20. And before you know it, one day you look in the mirror and you think, how did I ever get like this? I mean, how did I get here? Have you ever had that feeling? You look in the mirror and you go, how did it get like this? Or what about in other areas of your life? Forget about your fitness. Like what about in your career? You know, what about with your family or, or your relationship life? Do you ever look and you go, how did it get like this? I don't remember making these decisions that got me here. Well, as we continue in our series today called The Story, you know, we're walking through the Bible in a year. We've gotten to this really difficult place, I think, in the Bible where we see the people of Israel making the same poor decisions over and over and over again. And you can almost sense like God's frustration building with people. 
uh, the people that he has chosen to be his treasured possession. If you remember, the kingdom of Israel is now broken into to two kingdoms, right? There's the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and there's the south, which is called Judah. And, and last week and the week before that, we talked about the northern kingdom and how the northern kingdom had strayed so far from God. They'd gotten so involved in idolatry that God allowed them to be invaded, and they got taken over by the Assyrians. But we said last week that this served as a great example for Judah, for the southern kingdom. Uh, and we watched as Judah was led by a great king, a king by the name of Hezekiah, and he was faithful to God. Remember last week we said that in the 200-plus year history of Israel during this time, there were 38 kings over Israel and Judah, and only five of them were what the Bible calls good kings. Well, Hezekiah was one of those. He was faithful to God, and he went through and he tore down all the idols in Judah. He saw what happened in the northern kingdom in Israel, and he said, we don't want that to be our fate. And so he tore down all the idols, and he brought back the people of Judah, the idea of worshiping God and following the one true God. And Hezekiah, as a result, is remembered very fondly for that. But eventually, Hezekiah died, just like we all do. Right? The last time I checked, the, the death rate was still 100% uh, in the world. Uh, and so Hezekiah dies, and in his place uh, is a king, his son, a man by the name of Manasseh. And that's where we're going to pick up today in Second Chronicles 33, uh, verse 1 is where we will be. You can follow along in your Bible. You can follow along in the story. It's on page 231. Uh, or if you have neither of those handy, they're going to be on the side screens right here. Second Chronicles 33, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Just let that settle in for a minute. How many of you have a 12-year-old or have been a 12-year-old? Were you ready to be king at 12? I thought I was. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 55 years, um, and so much more time as king than not as king. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, remember, this is the son of Hezekiah, the great king, okay? He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord. He built altars to other gods in the temple, um, to which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to the starry host. And this is the worst part. So he's, he's done all that. He's gone against God. But verse 6, he sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. He practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And as I'm reading that, I'm just reminded the last time we were in Haiti, um, our team went to visit some friends uh, in the village of Chambrun, and there was a... Uh, a funeral going on right next door to our friend's uh, village, our friend's uh, house. And it was a funeral of a witch doctor who had died. And it was a, a long, drawn-out uh, funeral and, and procession and, and party and celebration. And there was all kinds of witchcraft and divination. And our, like our people were looking over at it going, that's really weird, that's really freaky. And this is the king of Judah, the king of one of the nations of Israel that's practicing witchcraft and divination, okay? And so what's happened here, God decides, uh, so th this, it wasn't just the king that was causing problems, though. What we see as we continue to read is it's the people of Judah, too. And so if you go to verse 9, it says, But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. So if you remember this part of the story, God said, I'm going to give you this land, but there are evil people in this land, what we call the promised land. And so God went in and destroyed those people because of the evil they were doing. And now scripture tells us that the people of Judah are doing worse 
than what the people that were there before. And so God decides it's time. All right, I've had enough. We're going to do away with the southern kingdom too. So you would think that the north being captured would be a good enough lesson. Um, but no, the people of Judah didn't listen. But then something really interesting happens. If you skip down to verse 11, you see this. Uh, verse 11, so the Lord brought against the arm, them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh, the king, prisoner. Okay, He took Manasseh prisoner, he put a hook in his nose, he bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. Verse 12 says, in his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord. Isn't that how it happens with us sometimes? Like when things are good, we don't really need God, but in our distress... We will seek the Lord. And that's what happened with the king of Judah, Manasseh. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty. Remember last week we talked about how prayer works, right? He was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. And an interesting thing happened to Manasseh and Judah. Manasseh realizes that he has wandered off course. He makes a 180-degree turn and begins worshiping the Lord again. And the people of Judah start to follow. And once again, Judah is saved from the hands of the foreign nation, at least until the next king comes along. And as we've read through this section of the story, you read through this part of the Bible, the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, which, let me give you a tip, a little pastor tip here. If you haven't noticed already, if you've been reading along in your Bible, First and Second Chronicles tells a lot of the same stories as First and Second Kings. And so if you're reading through your Bible, like straight through from beginning to end, you may notice when you get to First and Second Chronicles, you get kind of confused. Well, that's because you've already read those stories before, a lot of them. So if you're reading through, you have my pastoral permission to skip one of those two sets of books. Okay, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Good stuff in both of them, important stuff in both of them, but tell a lot of the same stories. So if you get confused... That's why. That's one of the things that's great about the story is you can read through those and not have to read them twice. Okay? But, but if you read through these books, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, it almost becomes predictable. There's this pattern of following God and then straying from God. And following God and straying from God. It's kind of like in our health life, right? You know, we, we stick to a diet for a while and then we get off of it for a while. And then we stick to it for a while and we, you know, we, we gain three pounds and we lose one. And we gain two pounds and we lose one, right? And then we just have this pattern. Well, what you see with the people of Israel and the people of Judah is they follow for a while and then they stray for a while. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is it reflects what happens in our lives. Like we do that too. Even those of us who are Christians, we follow for a while and we stray for a while. And we follow for a while and we wander for a while. And those periods of wandering can really make a mess of things. You've seen it in your life, so many areas of your life, the choices you make when you wander away from God can cause repercussions that last far beyond our wandering. Right? We see it in, when we make bad financial choices. You know, we see it in our marriages and our relationships. We see it when we end up in legal trouble. We see it when we're not careful about the words we use and we end up hurting someone that we love. You know, and a couple of weeks ago, we talked about idolatry and uh, the idols in our lives that we elevate above God. And a lot of us deal with that. But so many times, it's not that we've elevated idols in our lives. It's not that we've intentionally replaced God with anything. A lot of times, we just get sloppy, don't we? I mean, in our search for joy, we go seeking for things that give us happiness, and they're poor substitutes for God. In fact, let me just say it this way, and if you want to follow along, uh, this is in your notes, in your sermon notes. Uh, Most of us don't run away from God. Instead, we wander away. 
We don't run away. Just like most of us don't plan on getting fat, we don't plan on running from God. We're not intentional about seeking God in our lives. And so instead of being set apart, as Scripture calls us to be, we end up blending in. In fact, you've probably all seen the surveys or seen a news story, but, but in so many areas of our lives, Christians today in America don't look any different from the rest of American culture, right? In so many ways, our attitudes on politics, on marriage and sexuality, what we watch on television, uh, what we listen to on the radio, how we dress, you can't look at most people who claim to be Christians and see any difference from the rest of the culture. And why is that? You know, how can it be that we wander so far off course that we look around and wonder, how did we ever even get here? I mean, as a nation, as a body of believers, how did we get here? Well, I saw a recent study this week by the Barna Group. The Barna Group, if you don't know, is an independent um, surveying organization. They do a lot of things about faith and Christianity. Uh, and a recent study points to four areas where many of us as Christians are sorely lacking in being intentional in our faith. And so I want to point these out, and I think it's important that you remember these because, or write these down uh, because we're going to refer to them later here in a minute. And so the first one is commitment. All right, the first area is commitment. Of the people surveyed, they were all, everybody that was surveyed was a self-proclaimed Christian. So the first question they asked is, are you a Christian? Yes. Then they continue the survey. If you're a question, 80% said they made a personal commitment to Jesus. I don't know about the other 20%, okay, what that means if you say you're a Christian, but you haven't made that commitment. But only 20% said they were intentional about investing in their own spiritual development. Okay, and the survey says this could explain why half of those that were surveyed feel like there should be more to the Christian life than they've experienced. If you're not intentional about your own spiritual development, you're going to feel like there's something lacking. So commitment was number one. Number two was repentance. About two-thirds of those surveyed have confessed their own sin to God. That's good. And asked for forgiveness. But we know, because we've talked about it before, repentance isn't just about confessing. It's about turning from, right, turning from our sin. And only 3%, according to the survey, 3%, it's not a very big percentage at all, have reached the final steps of repentance where they confess to God and then to other people and then turn from their sin and then hand their entire life over to Jesus and his will. Now, this is important because if we don't do that, we're prone to wander. Right? We'll wander back into sin. Now, nobody wanders out of sin. You have to be intentional about getting out of sin, but we can wander back into sin. The third area is this. It's about spiritual activity. All right? While 40% of Christians had taken part in at least three spiritual activities in the past week, that's a church service, a prayer, reading of Scripture, uh, singing worship songs, whatever it is, about 80% or 40% took place in three, but the more personal, more private expressions were lacking. Uh, only uh, 1 in 10 had taken part, for instance, in fasting or spiritual reflection, and less than 10% had talked to anybody about Jesus in that week. And then the fourth area where we're lacking sometimes as Christians is spiritual community. Spiritual community. Again, 80% claim to be Christians, but far fewer felt like being a part of any spiritual community was important, whether it's a church or a connection group or a house church or whatever. Only 20% felt this was an important aspect of their faith. But if you're not connected to other believers, if you're not living life alongside other people, then you're looking at the world and the culture for how to live. I mean, this is why at Genesis, we're a big believer in what we call the three C's. And if you haven't been here before, maybe you haven't heard this, but we believe we are a church of people who celebrate, we connect, and we contribute. You know, we celebrate on Sunday mornings. We come together, we worship and praise together. We, we celebrate the things that God is doing in our lives. We, we contribute. We contribute through the giving of our offerings, but we also contribute our time. I love Pastor Pierre's T-I-M-E. You know, we give our talents. We give uh, our, our time to the ministries of Genesis Church, to people, to our partners outside of Genesis Church. We believe in contributing. And that third one is connecting. 
We believe in connecting believers to other believers. That's why it's important to be here on Sunday morning. Um, because uh, there are people in this room that will hold you accountable for, for what you're doing and for being here and making sure that you're reading scripture, making sure that you're worshiping. Uh, we, we believe in connection groups. In fact, we've got some connection groups that are going to be starting uh, in September again. We're, our connection groups kind of go on a yearly calendar, but we've got some other opportunities and on-ramps. But I, I want to challenge you with something this morning. If you're in a group, um, would you think about leading a group? Uh, come, coming September, we're going to need more groups for more people, more opportunities uh, for people to get involved and connected here at Genesis Church. If you've been in a group for a while, uh, we'd love to have you lead one. You know, we can provide resources and, and, and we can even provide a place to meet if you don't have that. But we need leaders who are ready to help people step up and get connected at Genesis Church. That's, that's one great way that you can serve and get connected to other people. You know, I, I love uh, what Romans 12.2 tells us to do in this area. It says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we shouldn't look to culture. We shouldn't look to the world for how to live our lives. We need to live differently than that. I love how this passage is translated in a version of the Bible called the message. It says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. And I think about that. How many things do we just go along? Do we fit into without even thinking? It says, instead, fix your attention on God. How are you doing? I mean, take a look down that list. Those four things. How are you doing in those four areas? Are those four areas helping you look any different than the rest of the culture? Or are you just blending in? Well, God looks down at the people of Judah and sees that more often than not, they're just blending in. They, they've wandered away. In fact, Judah looks so much more like the idol-worshiping nations around it that God allows it, finally, to get captured by one of them. And in 586 B.C., the nation of Babylon, which was led by a king named Nebuchadnezzar, uh, invades Judah... And takes it over. And the walls around Jerusalem are destroyed. And the temple is destroyed. And many of the people are captured or sent to the surrounding areas. But there's a small group of people that stay behind. The Bible calls them a remnant. And when you hear that word remnant, you either think of carpet, right? Or you think of something that's, that's not really that important. It's a scrap. It's a leftover. It's almost like an afterthought. But that's not how God thinks of them. Because what we're going to see is that God is still in desperate pursuit of this remnant. And this may be a great reminder in your life. You can look at what's happened in Judah and think, okay, that's it. That's the end. They're, the Babylonians are there. They've gotten captured. Now both of the kingdoms, both north and south of Israel, have fallen. It's all over for God's people. But it's not. And maybe in your life you look at what's happening and what's happening all around you and you think the same thing. It's over. But what if it's not? I mean, because what we'll find out is God's not done with Judah yet. And I think God's not done with you yet. And so he sends another message to the people of Judah. And this one is from a prophet, a messenger by the name of Jeremiah, to help get his people back on the right path. Now, Jeremiah is called by God uh, through a conversation that's very similar to the one that God called Moses with. He sees Jeremiah and he tells Jeremiah that he's been set apart for the job of a prophet. But Jeremiah argues with God. He says, I'm too young. I don't know how to speak very well. But God convinces Jeremiah that, that his presence will go with the young prophet wherever he goes. Oh, and there's just one more thing God said. The people are stubborn. Like, they're not going to listen to you. You've got to go preach to them, and they're not going to hear a word you say. But you need to keep speaking, keep teaching, 
Keep doing what I tell you to do. You know in your life what it's like, right? When you're trying to help somebody and you've got great advice and you know that what you're giving them is just the prize. Like you are so proud of the advice that you've put forward because you know that if they would just let you run their life, you would do it so much better than they could do it, right? You know that what you're telling them is good stuff, but they they don't have ears to hear it. Well, that's what's happened with the nation of Israel. God tells Jeremiah to go preach repentance to the nation of Israel even when they don't listen. And if you're Jeremiah, it could cause you to be pretty bitter, couldn't it? It could cause you to be angry. It could cause you to be upset, but it doesn't. Instead, Jeremiah comes to deliver God's message to Judah, not as somebody who's bitter, not as somebody who's angry, but as someone, not as somebody who's just carrying out an order, but he preaches the word of God with a true broken heart for God's people. In fact, his words are so profound and his heart is so evident in what he writes that Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet. And so we see his pain as he's writing these words uh, from God in Jeremiah chapter 2. If you have the story, it's on page 238. But Jeremiah 2.11 says this, Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Here's what God's saying through the prophet Jeremiah. He's reminding us that when we're unintentional about our relationship with God, you know, when we we just wander away from his will, from his word, from his plan for our lives, what we're doing is we're exchanging something of great value in God For something of no value. We're we're trading this spring of living water for a broken cistern. Now, a cistern is the the piece that they put down in the well to hold water, right? Now, the symbolism in this passage would have been immediately obvious to the people of the time. It's maybe a little tougher for us. But but have you ever tried to dig a really big hole? Anybody with a shovel or like post hole diggers? Like you're, I'm talking about like you're planting a big tree. Uh, Mike Jackson, the landscaper, has, of course. Um, so you're planting like a big tree or you're digging lots of fence posts. And that's a lot of hard work, right? Especially around here. Most of our soil is clay with some rocks mist, mixed in. And if you've got a basement at your house, it's even worse because they take the basement stuff and spread it all over your lawn. And that's what you get to dig through, right? And so you're digging this hole. Well, imagine doing this if you're in the Middle East where it barely ever rains. Okay, and so you're going to dig a hole for a well. And so it's going to be really big and really deep, right? It'd be like digging a well in Haiti. And the ground is hard. And you need a pickaxe to go through it. And it's hot. And every shovel full of dirt costs you in sweat. And it takes a toll on your muscles. And, And right next to it, right next to this hole you're digging, God reminds us, is this spring, like this fresh spring of living water. It's, it's, it's clear, it's cold, it's flowing, it's there all the time. And you're breaking your back trying to dig your own well. And you want to dig a hole big enough to put a cistern in it. And once you do, you realize that all you've worked for, all the time you've put on that, that, that cistern doesn't even hold water. God says, this is what it's like. Like when you get off course, when you go your own way, when you allow yourself to get swept up in the culture, that's what happens. You're trading that spring of living water. For a broken cistern, a leaky well. There are lots of leaky cisterns in our culture. Hope in a certain career or a certain degree is a leaky cistern. Politics. Politics is a leaky cistern. Not that it's not important, but when it starts to consume us or it becomes more important than our relationship with God, it doesn't hold water. Some of our friendships or even romantic relationships 
are leaky cisterns. There's an awful lot of movies and songs and TV shows and movie stars and rock stars and concert tickets and sports teams that are leaky cisterns. When we wander into these worlds and we allow them to distract us from our focus on God, we realize that even this really good stuff can become a dry well for us. Fortunately, we have a God of second chances, a God of third chances, a God of fourth chances, the God that created you, the God who, the Bible tells us, knit you together in your mother's womb, the God who knew you before you were ever born. He offers you a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance. We serve a God who loves to forgive. It's in his character. It's in his nature. There's a book in the Bible called Lamentations. It seems to have been written right after the fall of Judah to Babylon. In fact, one critic said of the book, the whole song stands so near to the events that one feels everywhere as if the terrible pictures of destruction stand still immediately before the eyes of the one lamenting. And most biblical scholars say that it was written by the prophet Jeremiah. And and while most of the book is pretty sad, there's a section of it that offers a great glimmer of hope to those of us who are straight off course. And this is on page 244 in the story. If you have your Bible, it's Lamentations 3, 22 to 24. It says this, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. What an incredible picture for us today. What a great picture of hope for you. You know, because of God's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. Great is his faithfulness. It really shows the heart of God, I think. And this passage gives us the key takeaway for chapter 17 of the story. And I hope you have this. God is faithful even when we're not. God is faithful even when we are not. You know, there's another prophet that was mentioned briefly in chapter 17, a man by the name of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel uh, sent a similar word. God sent a similar word to the people of Judah through Ezekiel. In fact, um, he took Ezekiel to a valley, and the valley was filled with bones. You, you guys all know the song, right, about Ezekiel and the dry bones. You know that song, but do you know the story? Ezekiel took God to this valley, and the valley was full of bones that had been um, bleached by the sun. Now, we don't know if this was a real valley that Ezekiel went to see, or if this was a vision, or if it was a dream, but it doesn't matter because it had such an impact on Ezekiel you can see because he goes back and writes this down. Now, Ezekiel um, uh, sees this valley of dry bones, and the Lord asks him a question. He says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel, he's pretty smart. He's a prophet, so he's pretty smart. But he says, I don't know, God. He says, you alone are the Lord. Basically, he says, hey, you tell me. But God doesn't tell him. Instead, he shows him. And again, we don't know if it's literal or figurative or, or what happens, but we know what happens next has a great impact on Ezekiel. And the bones start to rattle, and they put themselves together right before his eyes, and then the bones start to form tendons and ligaments, and flesh appears. And God tells Ezekiel to talk to the wind, and the wind puts breath into the bones, and they come back to life. And God says, I want this to happen to my people. I want to restore my people. I want, to, I want to help them find their way back to me. Even though they've strayed. Even though they've wandered. Even though my people have gotten sloppy, I want to bring them back. Again, a second story that tells the heart of God. God is faithful even when we're not. Finally, there's a third story. This one's from the New Testament. It's one that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. Now, in this story, there's a father with two sons. 
and the younger son wanders away. He takes half of his inheritance and goes his own way, away from the father, away from his family. He spends all of his money on wine and on women and on parties, and he ends up having to get a job feeding pigs. Now, at this time in this culture, feeding pigs was a pretty low job because you remember that pigs were unclean to the nation of Israel. And at some point while he's doing this, he's, he's feeding these pigs and he's looking at the scraps that he's feeding the pigs and, he, and they're making them hungry. They look so good. And he realizes, this is ridiculous. I mean, even my father's servants, my father's slaves eat better than this. And so he decides what he's going to do is he's going to go back to his father and he's going to beg him for a job. Like even if he can't uh, be part of the family, to be his father's slave would be so much better than this life that he's living. Well, he's in for a surprise, and you can see this in Luke chapter 15. It says, So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring on, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. The picture we get in this story is of a father who's anxiously awaiting the return of his son. He, he's, he's not satisfied to just sit at home and wait, but instead he walks up every day to the edge of the property thinking, maybe this will be the day that he comes home. Maybe this will be the day. Again, it's a third story that shows the heart of God. God is faithful even when we're not. And maybe you've got a vision this morning. Maybe you've got this idea. I've heard people this from people that there's a, like this Old Testament God and the New Testament God. And that I really like the New Testament God, but I'm not sure about the Old Testament God. So maybe I'm not going to read, even read the Old Testament. But let me show you three stories. They all show the same heart of God of a father who is waiting for us to come home, who's anxiously awaiting the return of his son. That, that no matter how far we've wandered, that there's a God that's waiting to take us back. In fact, I was thinking about this this morning as I was praying, and I just this verse keep, kept coming to mind, Psalm 130. It's not even on the screens. I'm sorry about that. But Psalm 139.7. Um, this is David writing, and he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And some of you are in this room and you're thinking, you know what? I've just wandered too far. I've gone too far from God. There's no way that he can take me back. Here's what you need to know today. Maybe you've not been intentional about your walk with God. Maybe you've strayed a little. Like you consider yourself a Christian, but you don't always like it. Or you don't always live like it. You don't always act like it. Or, or maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. But you're here and you're becoming because you know that there's more to life. You feel like there's got to be more than what you've experienced. Or, or maybe you're here and you feel like, you know what, I've, I've disappointed God. Like you've made some bad choices and you know he must be frustrated with you. Well, I don't know what your earthly father was like. Or, or even what images the word father brings up in your mind. But you've got a heavenly father that loves you. He's crazy about you. He, he longs to take you back. He's, he's waiting for you with open arms. Well, he's not just waiting. He's standing at the edge of the road. He's waiting for you to just turn around and make that move back to him so that he can run and meet you and embrace you and celebrate with you that you were dead, but now you're alive. He longs for the day when you trade that broken cistern for the spring of living water, when you're being intentional in your pursuit of God. Just like all along, he's been intentional in his pursuit of you.
Would you pray with me?